gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. I've got a few things to say about Superman, The Superman Vidcast, The World's Best Podcast, and Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com, as well as the audio dramas Superman, Last Son of Krypton, and Supergirl, Last Daughter of Krypton from Pendant Audio Production. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co-host Scotty V. at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Hey everybody, pardon the noise, but I've got people hard at work on the coming changes to the show. Um, but, uh, oh, <laughs> by the way, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and welcome to episode 46 of Superman in the Bronze Age, the first episode of Superman in the Bronze Age Presents series of episodes, where I will be presenting episodes of other Superman podcasts that I think you should be listening to. But before we get to that, this episode of Superman of the Bronze Age is sponsored by InStock Trades, a mainstay of the comic collection market. InStock Trades has over 1,300 individual trade paperback, graphic novel, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship, all at great discounted prices. Most orders ship within 48 hours, and orders, orders over $50 ship for free. An example of the deals you'll find is Showcase Presents Superman, Volume 2. The Man of Steel faces off against a wide array of threats, from the impish Mr. Mixios Pitalik, to the deadly alien Brainiac, to the utterly incomprehensible Bizarro, to the large and in-charge Titano, in the second showcase spotlighting the Silver Age exploits of Superman, featuring Action Comics 258-275 through 275 and Superman 134-145. through 145. The cover price for this book is $16.99, but InStock Trades has it for a mere $10.49, which is a savings of 40%. For this deal and more, make sure you check them out at www.instocktrades.com. Now, for the first episode of Superman in the Bronze Age Presents, I'm spotlighting Billy Hogan's Superman Fan Podcast. Currently clocking in at 221 episodes at the time of this recording, Billy's is one of the longest-running Superman podcasts on the internet. When he started the show, it featured various topics from creator spotlights to specially themed episodes. But with the Superman podcast explosion of 2011, he decided that with podcasts covering all of the other eras of the Man of Steel, he jumped into the Silver Age. Regularly, he'll feature Superman and Action Comics one week, and then the other Superman family titles the next. 
Also, for the last couple of years, Billy has been making trips to Megacon in Orlando, bringing back audio from the various panels he's been able to get in on. Today, I'm featuring episode 217, covering the issues with the July 1960 cover date. Specifically, Superman number 138 and Action Comics number 266. So sit back, relax, grab your indestructible cape, and after a quick promo, follow Billy through the time barrier to Superman's Silver Age. Do you enjoy time travel in general and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan, and I will be your host. Together, we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week, we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. You can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. This is the Superman Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Hogan. Put on your indestructible cape and join me as together we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. This is episode number 217, the Superman comic books cover dated July 1960. Superman number 138 and Action Comics number 266 for the week of Wednesday, February 8th, 2012. And I'm recording this on Thursday the 9th, so I'm a day late. I'm recording this around noontime. Before we get into the issues, uh, first of all, uh, this time next week I'll be getting ready for Megacon, but more about that later. First of all, I have two emails to share. First of all, I have one from Russell Bragg. He says, Hi, I'm trying to upload all of the Superman fan podcasts to my iPod. And I mean all of them from the beginning. iTunes does not have them all. I went to the Superman podcast and your website and found some episodes, but I can't find the earliest ones. Am I doing something wrong? Please let me know how I can get all of the episodes. Thank you. Signed, Russell Bragg brag and I responded to Russell and uh, thanked him for his interest and uh, wanting to go through the punishment of listening to all 216 previous episodes Uh, and for those of you who were recent listeners to this podcast originally originally 
began this podcast on the website mypodcast.com, which was a free uh, podcast service where you could set up uh, your own podcast without paying for bandwidth uh, fees or anything like that because that was the only way I could afford to do it, which is um, still that way. Um, I don't have any sponsorship. But around Thanksgiving, apparently the owners of the um, my podcast website came to the conclusion that it was uh, no longer financially you know, feasible or they weren't making enough money to cover the cost of keeping the website up. And so they, uh, at the beginning of November of last year, they uh, gave a couple of weeks' notice that they were going to shut down the website. Uh, they gave the uh, final date as the 1st of December of last year, but around Thanksgiving, uh, they pulled the plug a little bit early. And that is why the new uh, website, the Superman Fan Podcast.blogspot.com, has that, that I've set up. Uh, is the new home for this podcast. And I haven't had time to uh, upload all of the episodes onto the new site. However, they are available on the Internet. Uh, in the meantime, if you go to the Internet Archive and do a search for Superman Fan Podcast, I've uploaded all of the episodes up there Um you may find that some of the early episodes are duplicated. That's because I was kind of learning how to work with the website and upload to it, and so you'll find a couple. Might find a couple of duplicates. Uh, there's no, no no difference between um, between the copies of uh, individual episodes. So you can just take your pick and. Um, download one of them you don't have to download uh, you know every uh, version you see of a particular episode however I do plan on eventually uh, as time allows it little by little upload the original episodes and I do have one episode I need to redo anyway and that's episode number 25 thanks to a listener Steve Rogers I believe um, who um, notified me that uh, there was an episode number 29, it was, that uh, there's no audio after the five-minute mark, so I need to get on a ball and uh, re-record that one as well. But, Russell, thanks for your interest, and I wanted to share this, this email and um, the, the information for any uh, recent listeners who would be interested in the early episodes uh, they're not as polished as uh, the current episodes I've been doing. Uh, first of all, they were recorded on my podcasts, um, their own recording software, and it didn't have any um, theme music at the time. It was, wasn't until about uh, a year or so after I began the podcast I had a theme, I found a theme that I wanted to use. Um, from a website that had uh, royalty-free uh, music available. And uh, so I didn't do any editing, so you'll find there are even more kind of pregnant pauses or me stumbling over my words than what you hear uh, on current episodes. But once again, thank you, Russell, for your interest and for any uh, new listeners who are interested in the early episodes 
I hope you'll find this information useful. Uh, when I began this podcast, for again for uh, recent listeners, uh, I wasn't going through uh, the Superman comic books of any particular era, you know, month by month in chronological or publication order. I uh, there weren't that many Superman podcasts at the time, so um, I. Uh, set up the podcast to be kind of a general introduction of Superman and his history, uh, the characters as well as the creators who've um, worked on uh, Superman stories over the years. And so I wanted to serve as just an introduction, and I would uh, jump back and forth and through various eras. And then after 2010, when a number of... Um, podcasts, uh, other Superman podcasts began covering other eras, uh, first of all with the From Crisis to Crisis podcast, which I think began sometime in 2009, if I'm not, not mistaken. That was the first one. Um, I'm not the first. That honor goes to uh, Radio KAL and the Speeding Bulletin video uh, podcast. Radio KAL is a monthly audio podcast. Speeding Bulletins is a weekly video podcast of the latest Superman news, and that is produced by the Superman homepage, uh, hosted by uh, Steve Eunice, the owner of the website and uh, current co-host Scotty V. And uh, other than that, uh, the other Superman podcast I found uh, before um, I began this one, uh, when I wanted to, uh, I was just getting into listening to comic book podcasts, um, and the only other Superman-related ones were in, involving the Smallville TV show. Uh, the one that pops to mind is uh, Starkville House of L. Um, and when the uh, other Superman podcasts popped up around 2010, covering different eras of Superman stories, uh, one era was... Uh, Untouched, and that was the Silver Age of Superman comics. You got uh, the Thrilling Adventures of Superman and Golden Age Superman, both by uh, different hosts, who they, they cover the original early Superman stories from the Golden Age. Michael Bradley hosts the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and John Wilson covers uh, the is the host of the uh, Golden Age Superman podcast. Charlie Niemeyer hosts uh, Superman in the Bronze Age, which follows the era right after the Silver Age, um, when uh, Julius Schwartz took over uh, the as editor of the Superman titles um, after the retirement of Mort Weisinger in 1970, up until uh, the DC reboot in 1986. From Crisis to Crisis covers uh, that era, from 86 to 2006, um, and uh, there's the New 52 podcast, uh, which covers the uh, current uh, era of Superman with the reboot, which began in uh, October or November of last year. And so since uh, 2011, I've been covering the Silver Age Adventures of Superman. Now, that brings me to... The next email, and that's from 
Michael Bradley, who, uh, as I mentioned before, is the host of the Thrilling Adventures of Superman podcast, about uh, episode 215. And um, I mentioned an uh, editor's note of, uh, in the story about uh, Hyperman, when Superman uh, went flew to the world of which was almost a duplicate of Earth, with that planet's superhero, who was called Hyperman, and was almost a twin of the Man of Steel, and Hyperman's fortress of uh, solitude, for he called it fortress of secrecy, was on the ocean floor. And the editor's note said that uh, Superman's fortress at one point was on the ocean floor in Action Comics 44, and I was able to take a look at that uh, issue, and there was not a story that mentioned uh, Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Michael writes, Superman's Undersea Fortress was introduced in the Super Merman of the Sea from Action Comics number 244. It didn't last beyond that one story. He gave it to the Atlanteans, if I remember right. But that is the only underwater fortress that I can remember from pre-crisis. So the editor's footnote was likely a typo. As you said, there certainly isn't one in episode number 44. And I was after. I want to thank you, uh, Michael, for that email, um, for clearing that up. And I was uh, slightly embarrassed that I completely forgot that story since we covered it back in episode 172 last year. And in that story, the Super Merman of the Sea, uh, Superman gave up his career on the surface. Uh, actually, in the end of the story, it turned out that he was uh, trying to stop an alien couple from a, uh, who lived on a, a world covered by water who were uh, merpeople. Uh, he was trying to keep them from turning Earth into a uh, water world and covering the entire surface with the, uh, with the ocean by melting the ice caps. Uh, and so that's where Superman, that's the story where Superman had uh, temporarily uh, set up his fortress. I did look back on the story and I didn't see a mention of Superman donating uh, the, his underwater fortress to the Atlanteans. It did mention that Superman had uh, put a uh, statue of um, a king of Atlantis in the fortress, but I didn't see where Superman donated the fortress to the Atlanteans, but maybe that was mentioned in a future story, which uh, I don't recall. But that's enough of an introduction. It's a bit longer than what I usually do, and so let's take a short break for some promos to some other podcasts, and then we'll begin our look at Superman number 138. The internet is really, really great. For Guy Gardner Podcast. I've got a fast connection, so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? 
Born Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Just one of the guys. Just one of the guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. Answering this question, what does great justice mean to you? Great justice means winning all the internets. Pirates beating ninja. Death to those who deserve it. The bad guys always get the fangirls. That's a great injustice. Free cosplay everywhere. Dot, dot, dot. The right people getting the right things. Free popsicles and licorice for life. Find the meaning for yourself at Henshin Justice Unlimited. Tokusatsu, anime, Power Rangers, video games, and all manner of things geek. All gathered in one place. www.henshinjustice.com Superman number 138, the July 1960 issue, was published on May 5th of that year. It contained 32 pages for the cover price of 10 cents. The editor was Mort Weisinger, and the cover was penciled by Kurt Swan and inked by Stan Kay. And this cover was also used as a cover to the reprint edition Showcase Presents Superman Volume 2, in which this story appeared. The first story of the issue, which was featured on the cover, was Titano the Super Ape. And this 10-page story was a sequel to the original Titano story, which also had the same name. And this story was written by Otto Bender, penciled by Wayne Boring, and inked by Stan Kay. Now, this story was also reprinted in DC Ghost Ape Volume 1, which gathered all of the DC uh, stories involving apes because it was kind of a tradition with DC Comics of using apes on a cover, because it was believed that using apes and the color purple, for whatever reasons, uh, would increase sales. Anyway, this story began when Superman was relaxing at his Fortress of Solitude, watching TV, which was no ordinary TV, but a, a time TV, which was a relic from a dead world, He was watching the prehistoric Earth on the Dinosaur Channel when he was surprised to see a giant ape because uh, since uh, mammals did not exist yet, or at least large ones, uh, in the Dinosaur Age. Uh, I think uh, back during the Dinosaur Age, any mammals were very small, if, if there were mammals at all during that era. But then he remembered Titano, who the Man of Steel had sent back to the Dinosaur Age, 
uh, in Titanus Origin, which uh, was in Superman number 127, which we covered back in episode 182. Then on parts of the next two pages, we uh, get a flashback to his origin to bring people up to speed who, speed who maybe did not read that original Titano story, where Titano was a chimp who was launched into space and exposed to the combined radiation from a collision of a uranium and kryptonite meteors. And after a safe return to Earth, he grew into a giant size, and he had kryptonite vision, which certainly was a problem for Superman. But eventually, Superman was able to overcome the ape and hurl him through the time barrier to the dinosaur age. As he watched Titano fight off, which a dinosaur looked like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, from some round objects on the ground, uh, it's not clear in this panel if they were eggs, dinosaur eggs or not, but suddenly Titano vanished. Then the man still noticed an inscription which he was able to translate, I guess thanks to his super intellect, and the inscription said left-hand dial is for focusing on past objects after the cosmic charge builds up from... Uh, then he turned right-hand dial, but before Man of, the Man of Steel could finish translating it, he was interrupted by the, a worldwide alarm system in the fortress, which blinked an alert for Metropolis, and uh, which is the first time that I, as I recall, we've seen this particular alarm system. Well, when Superman flew to Metropolis, he discovered Titano had returned. And during the flight to Metropolis, Man of Steel finished translating the alien inscription in his head. The object in focus will be transported from the past to the future. Then he realized it wasn't just a time TV where he could look at images from the past, but it was a time transporter. Titana ripped a giant uh, prop uh, bowling ball from a sign uh, for a bowling alley. Well, then he snarled and tossed the bowling ball prop into the sky, but Superman deflected it before it could hit an airliner, which was uh, had the sign for the Metropolis Rams. Uh, it's not, I assume it's some uh, sports team in Metropolis, but I'm not clear as to uh, what sport it would be. It's not mentioned in the story. Then the Man of Steel was zapped by Titano's kryptonite vision, and after Superman fell to the ground, uh, he uh, Titano stepped on the Man of Steel, who was able to escape when the weight of Titano's foot uh, broke, th crushed the uh, the ground, and Superman fell through the hole onto a top, the top of a subway train, and was able to travel out of range of Titano. After changing into Clark Kent. He was about to activate his Superman robot thanks to his using his X-ray vision. Unfortunately, once again, Clark had painters redecorating his uh, apartment, and so he had to quickly shut the secret closet before they discovered the Superman robots and possibly his secret identity. Clark had to run with the crowd in front of Titana, who caused public... Uh, destruction by crushing cars as he uh, walked. Then Titano made his way to the Daily Planet building and 
like King Kong, climbed to the top of the building and ripped the Daily Planet globe off the uh, from the roof and then hurled it into the sky. But fortunately, this time it was would Superman saw that it would fall harmlessly in the ocean. Clark hurried to a storeroom to change it to Superman and unpacked his suit of lead armor, which he used originally in uh, the Kryptonite Man story from Action Comics number 245 when Lex Luthor had developed a formula using Kryptonite, which when he drank the Kryptonite serum, he became a Kryptonite Man. Clark, uh, Superman was able to shield himself from Titano's kryptonite vision. Uh, apparently, Titano was also able to see through walls because he recognized Lois, who had shown him uh, affection uh, when he was still a chimpanzee. He, Titano smashed his fist through the wall and grabbed Lois. And Lois was surprised that Titano remembered her. And he handled her gently, but... She attempted to escape when she jumped onto a warehouse roof and made her, uh, made her way inside. She hid in a cage, but Titano punched through the roof and grabbed the cage and tied it around his neck. So Lois was a pet or a toy of Titano. You know, I've seen those uh, necklaces uh, in the toy section, which uh, for little girls that have these little tiny dolls inside that they could play with. So that's what this... Uh, scene reminded me of. Superman approached Titano and uh, Lois, but his, using a burst of super speed to avoid a, a blast of kryptonite vision, melted the lead armor suit, but then the military showed up and the Man of Steel shielded Titano and Lois from a tank shell and warned the military forces who had mobilized to Metropolis that Lois was in danger and that he would take care of it. And so they held their fire. Titano then saw a lighter-than-air balloon and grabbed it, uh, destroying it and causing the basket containing its passengers to fall. Superman saved the balloon passengers not by catching the basket, but by grabbing the track of a nearby roller coaster and sw um, taking it off and swinging it uh, underneath the falling um, balloon passengers who were able to fall into the roller coaster car, and then Superman repaired the roller coaster at super speed. Titano stepped into the harbor and grabbed the round deep-sea bathysphere, but then, disappointed yet again, he tossed it into the ocean, but Superman cushioned uh, the bathysphere and the crew inside using a super breath, and then realized what Titano was looking for. He flew through, through the time barrier to the dinosaur age and found the round objects that Titano had fought the dinosaur over and discovered that, no, they weren't eggs, but a species of giant coconuts, which had fallen onto the ground. So he took some back uh, to 1960, and while Titano feasted on the coconuts, Superman rescued Lois uh, from her cage then he knocked out the giant ape and returned Titano back to the dinosaur age. Later, as the Daily Planet staff gathered on the roof to look at the new Daily Planet globe that Superman had built, Clark joked with Lois by 
giving her the headline idea for a scoop. I was the first human being to be the pet of an animal. Which, obviously, Lois did not think was very funny at all. First of all, the first thing that came to mind when I read the story is, you know, in one respect, Superman's just like any other guy. When he sees a new machine, uh, he starts turning knobs to find out how it works, and then when all else fails, he reads the instructions. And that's no, he's just like the rest of us. Unfortunately, Superman's oops wound up bringing Titano to Metropolis. And his bad. On pages 4 and 5, uh, the man of steel had a new appreciation to the, for the Metropolis subway when he fell through the street and was able to escape Titano. Clark's apartment was painted quite a lot in the Silver Age. And it, I guess it served at point of uh, making Superman unable to activate one of his Superman robots in his secret closet in his apartment. Then we see uh, in the panel, which served as the uh, cover for uh, Showcase Presents Volume 2, as well as the cover for the issue of Titano ripping the Daily Planet globe off of the roof. When Superman rescued the passengers from the lighter-than-air balloon um, and he ripped the track off the roller coaster to catch the falling passengers, it's nice that they just happened to fall into the uh, roller coaster seats uh, and didn't just fall on top of the roller coaster and injure themselves. Uh, this was kind of a typical uh, Silver Age uh, scene where, especially in Superman comics, where they would make a rescue, like, overcomplicated. Well, it probably worked back then for the younger readers that were the intended audience of Superman comics. Today, it kind of seems to me a little silly, you know, just catch the hot air balloon that they were riding in. But that was the way they did things uh, in the Silver Age to kind of make Superman's uh, rescue seem more spectacular. Well, there are a lot of scenes where Superman, you know, in the Silver Age, Superman is awesome, you know, when in doing his super deeds. Scenes like this do kind of make the Superman stories a little bit dated. What I liked most about this story was how Superman used his brain to figure out uh, what Titano's fascination with round objects was. That's what adds to my enjoyment of Superman stories when I see him using his brain as much if not more than his superpowers to f figure out a way to uh, overcome the villain or solve the problem. It just adds a little bit extra to the story and it's something that's missing from you know more modern Superman tales. Uh, I don't expect you know, the modern Superman to have the super intellect from the Silver Age, but I do like to see Superman uh, use his brain just as much as his brawn. This was a nice follow-up to the original Titano story, which I was, wasn't was aware that there was a sequel. Over in checking out uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at dcindexes.com, this will not be the last time we see Titano in a Superman story, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, the little point about the uh, rescue of the passengers of the hot air balloon 
was this minor quibble. It didn't really uh, take away from my enjoyment of the story. And I have to give it three Superman capes out of five. And after a couple of promos for some other comic book podcasts, we'll take a look at the second story from Superman number 138. My name is Steve Lacey, I'm a podcaster. Randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 Minute Long Box. The 20 Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. In a world where planets die. I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Billions. Once again, the press underestimates me. One man will become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. Protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? Well, they don't call them tights for nothing. <laughs> Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at GreatCrypton.com. The seven-page second story of Superman number 138 was titled Superman's Black Magic, written by Jerry Siegel with art by Al Plastino. And this story was reprinted in Showcase Presents Superman, Volume 2. And this was the 14th Jerry Siegel story for the Silver Age Superman in the regular Superman titles of Action and Superman. And it... And I'll give some other info about the other Jerry Siegel stories he wrote for the other Superman family of titles uh, with the final story in this issue. Uh, It began at the Daily Planet masquerade party where Jimmy Olsen dressed as Superboy, Perry was dressed as Superman, and Lois was dressed as an angel. And we see Bruce Wayne also attending for whatever reason dressed as an unmasked Batman. We also see Green Arrow and Wonder Woman 
Uh, and it's not made clear if they are the real superheroes or just people dressed as the masked Green Arrow and Wonder Woman. But certainly uh, it looks like the real Wonder Woman, but it's not mentioned, so I'll move on. Clark was dressed as a masked devil, and his telescopic vision spotted two gang leaders, Duke Haskell and Lefty Montez, uh, walking outside near the Daily Plant building, who police were never able to gather enough evidence to arrest them, even though they were known gangsters. But Clark uh, thinks he's dressed for the part, and he feigned... uh, having to leave the party because he had a stomach ache from eating too many donuts. And then outside the Daily Planet building, he took some rocks and squeezed some inflammable magnesium uh, from the rocks and stored the uh, dust in the secret pocket of his cape. Suddenly, Haskell and Montez see a puff of smoke and in front of them stands the devil. Now, the uh, flash was caused by Superman, or Clark Kent, using his X-ray vision to ignite a small handful of the magnesium powder. The devil proposed a deal with the crooks. He'd grant them three wishes if they were willing to pay his price. So it didn't take them long at all to come up with three, dish, three wishes. First of all, they wanted $1 million in cash, a king's ransom in diamonds, and a hideout that the law could never would never be able to grab them from. So the devil carried the gang leaders on his pitchfork to a desolate mountain peak and ordered one million dollars to come. However, Superman's telescopic vision had spotted two counterfeiters in the nearby woods, and they had used a hollowed out large the large hollowed out trunk of a tree as a hideout for their uh, counterfeiting uh, print press. Superman used his super breath to suck the $1 million in fake bills to Haskell and Montez. Then he disappeared in another another puff of smoke to arrest... He changed into Superman and arrested the counterfeiters and turned them into the nearest FBI office. Returning to the uh, mountaintop as the devil, he granted his second wish by leaving and returning, uh, by finding a, uh, a coal underground and squeezing the coal into, excuse me, into diamonds. Then, for a third wish, he took them into the depths of a dying volcano, which the crooks thought that they had entered hell, which they only called that other place because, after all. Uh, the issue had the Comics Code Authority seal on it, and so they couldn't use that other word. The crooks realized that their riches would not do them any good down there, so they agreed that uh, they wanted to return to Earth. Well, the devil was willing to uh, make another deal with them to return them to Earth if they agreed to write on every crime they'd ever committed as well as listing all of their accomplices. And after uh, taking their signed confessions, the devil ripped off his, uh, took off his costume, revealed himself as none other than Superman. 
and he turned in Haskell and Montez to the Metropolis Police Department along with their signed confessions. And the police sergeant happened to mention that uh, they were serving for dessert to the prisoners, none, none other than devil's food cake. Clark Kent uh, put up his uh, devil costume back on and returned to the Daily Planet masquerade party because he was having a devil of a good time. And that's where the story ended with uh, Clark uh, partying into the night. In the past, I've mentioned that I'm not really uh, crazy about other stories where Superman has played tricks on his close friends for various reasons to protect his secret identity. Uh, Recently, we saw one where he uh, protected uh, Supergirl's uh, identity from the world. Uh, But this is different. This is the first time we've seen Superman playing tricks on crooks. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't mind it very much at all. When Clark uh, said that he needed to uh, leave the party, Lois didn't have a snarky comment like she has in past Superman stories where Clark had to come up with some weak excuse uh, feign some weakness or uh, whatever, to just so he could leave to operate as Superman. Uh, she was actually nice to Clark. And uh, she said, oh, it was too bad because you were having such a good time, Clark. First of all, uh, as far as the other uh, partygoers, I hope this is the last time that we see Perry White dressed in a Superman costume because uh, he does not have the figure for it. Uh, I have to agree with the From Crisis to Crisis co-host Michael Bailey, who said that he believes in uh, people wearing superhero costumes if they have the appropriate body type, which uh, Perry doesn't, and I don't either. I would probably look more like Perry White than Christopher Reeve or uh, Henry Cavill wearing a Superman costume. In fact, the only superhero costume I would feel comfortable wearing, since I do have a little bit of a gut, would be the Adam West 1960s Batman costume. Otherwise, not until I uh, lose a little weight and get it in better shape whenever that would happen to be. So don't hold your breath for that. Superman... I liked how Superman appealed to the baser instincts of the crooks in order to lure them into his trap. And seeing Superman uh, dressed as a devil, it just appeared, while it's not said, it seemed like Superman was having a lot of fun pulling one over the crooks. And one Another reason I like this story is here's another example of Superman using his brain uh, to... Uh, capture the crooks. He didn't use real money or diamonds. Well, he made artificial diamonds, uh, I guess if you could call it that, by squeezing coal into diamonds. Then he caught two other counterfeiters to boot and got had them arrested. The icing on the cake was when Superman and Haskell, Superman took Haskell and Montez into the volcano, and they thought that they had entered hell itself. And then they uh, finally, they were a little slow in the draw, and they 
they thought, finally thought through what they'd asked for and realized, you know, money's not going to do us very much good in hell. And so he gave them exactly what they asked for. Uh, I did like the sergeant's comment. It really kind of another dig at the uh, uh, criminals. Now, I'm not sure legally if this was the real world, if the the way in which Superman got the confession from the criminals would hold up or not. I don't have a problem with it, but uh, I'm curious if anyone who's uh, a lawyer or is familiar with uh, the legal system would uh, send me an email and uh, uh, inform us if uh, this would hold up in court or not. This was one of the most unusual and fun Superman stories I've read, and I've got to give it four Superman capes out of five. And after a couple of other uh, promos for some comic book podcasts, we'll take a look at the third and final story from Superman number 138. And now, folks, it's time for Who Do You Trust? Hubba, 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 money, money, money. Who do you trust? Me? I'm giving away free money. And where is the Batman? Okay, let's try this another way. Where's Bruce? People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored, I can be destroyed, but as a symbol... As a symbol, I can be incorruptible. I can be everlasting. Giant menacing supernatural form. Kinda like a bat. Every punk in this town is scared stiff. You know what they say? They say he can't be killed. They say he drinks blood. There's nothing mere about that mortal. Who, who are you? I'm your worst nightmare. I don't know who he is behind that mask of his, but I do know when we need him. And we need him now. Where are you? Here. <gasps> Legends of the Batman. Everything Batman from the beginning. Available at BatmanLegends.com. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. For the latest news and rumors for all things DCU, listen to the world's best podcast. And remember, stay, stay super. super. The third and final story for Superman number 138 was titled The Mermaid from Atlantis. This nine-page story was written by Jerry Siegel. Penciled by Wayne Boring and inked by Stan Kay, and was reprinted in Showcase Presents Superman Volume 2. This was Jerry Siegel's 15th Silver Age Superman story for the Superman titles of Action and Superman, 
and the 29th Silver Age story overall since the final, the previous uh, Superman issue we covered. He also wrote a story for Adventure Comics number 273 titled The Boy Who Was Stronger Than Superboy, uh, which was drawn by George Papp. Perry assigned Clark and Lois to photograph undersea life for a Sunday magazine feature, and Lois returned to her snarky self after the previous story's masquerade party when Clark uh, was surprised about the assignment. She said, Don't look so frightened, Clark. I'll hold your hand. In the undersea uh, city of Atlantis, the mermaid Lori Lamaris uh, was listening listening in to the conversation at the Daily Planet office telepathically, which gave her I, an idea. On the next page, it was a flashback with, uh, which showed uh, the previous two Lori Lamara stories where Superman discovered Lori was a mermaid, and then in the second story, she was injured, and Superman found a merman surgeon from another planet who he was able to bring to Earth and restore her health, and with whom Lori fell in love. Well, after Clark and Lois had uh, boarded the ship and it was had set sail and anchored for the evening, Lois took a night dive uh, in the uh, bathysphere while Clark slept, and Lori telepathically ordered a deep-sea creature, which looked like a fish with tentacles, to wrap itself around the submersible. Then Lori telepathically awakened Clark so that he changed into Superman and uh, flying out of the ship at super speed so no one would realize that Clark was actually Superman, rescued Lois. Lori ordered the sea creature to swim away. Then the Man of Steel lifted the bathysphere to the surface, kicking sharks out of the way, giving uh, the seamen on board the ship a sight they'd never seen before, uh, sharks that seemed to fly into the air. Once uh, Superman got Lois out of the bathysphere, Lori gave Superman a telepathic suggestion that he kiss Lois, which he does on the forehead. Well, this didn't sit well with Lois, and she... Uh, very angrily asked Superman if it was beneath him to display any affection. And Lori didn't expect this type of kiss from Superman. So he streaked at super speed back to his cabin and emerged at Clark, as Clark Kent. And Clark returned the snarky remark when he told Lois that it served right that Superman needed to rescue her for trying to scoop him on the assignment. And a very irritated Lois returned to her cabin to cry on her pillow, wondering if Superman would ever ask her to marry him. Well, the next day, Lori found a man adrift uh, in a raft lost at sea, so she uh, pushed it within sight of the ship Clark and Lois was on, and the crew of the ship rescued uh, the adrift castaway, who happened to have amnesia, but he quickly became very fond of Lois and wound up proposing. Lois later asked Clark if she should wait for Superman to ask her uh, to propose to her, or should she marry a stranger?
Clark feigned seasickness and went into his cabin, and once inside he changed into Superman in order to prevent Lois from making a very bad mistake. Later, on the deck, the castaway uh, demanded, well, didn't really demand, but he pressed Lois for an answer to his marriage proposal. But before Lois could uh, tell him her decision, Superman had brought on board the Prime Minister Basil, who, who the castaway did recognize. And uh, Prime Minister Basil was delighted that uh, the castaway, who was actually Prince Gregory of the country, who ruled the country of Veronia, was still alive. And Superman explained that he had recognized the prince while on patrol, but didn't uh, give any details as to how. So the Prime Minister explained that the prince was pledged to marry Princess Helene, Helene of the um, neighboring country Elmar, and if the two did not marry, then the two, their two nations would go to war. And so Superman returned Prince Gregory and the Prime Minister back to their country. Lori fretted over her failures and was determined to get Superman to propose to Lois. After returning from Veronia, Superman stuck back into his cabin at super speed and emerged as Clark Kent and, now over his seasickness, uh, asked Lois about the advice that she had wanted. And Lois simply just told Clark to go get seasick again. Well, the next day, while Lois was working on the assignment, Superman was exploring the ocean depths. And there's no mention of what Clark was supposed to be doing. When, much to his surprise, he saw a fish with Lois's face. But then uh, the, uh, Lois's face seemed to vanish, and the fish returned to their normal appearance. Actually, they were masks that Lori had placed on the fish, which dissolved after she hit a remote control button. Next, Lori summoned a school of whales, which took turns ramming the ship, and Clark pretended to have been knocked off balance and fell um, into the water and was swallowed by one of the whales. Lori thought that after the whale uh, would spit out Clark, it would confirm to Lois that Clark was actually Superman, which is exactly what happened until Aquaman appeared and informed Lois that he had telepathically ordered the whale to release Clark. Later, Superman met Lori, who realized that he knew that she was behind uh, everything that had, had happened. The Man of Steel uh, had noticed Lori causing the uh, Lois masks to disappear from the fish and as politely asked her to stop meddling and allow him to pick his own wife, and Lori agreed. And as it turned out that Super uh, Clark had used his super ventriloquism to so quickly summon Aquaman, who happened to be close enough to help cover his secret identity. After Superman returned to the ship, he changed into his Clark Kent, Clark Kent identity, and Lois asked if Superman would ever propose marriage to her, while Clark wondered who would be next to play matchmaker after first Supergirl and then Lori. Crypto? This was not a bad story, but I have to be honest, I didn't like it very much because uh, I guess I'm just not that crazy about uh, Clark or Superman 
or any of his friends kind of meddling in each other's lives as was typical of the Silver Age. But it doesn't mean it wasn't fun. And this is typical of what happens in real life when friends meddle. Things don't exactly, you know, most of the time work out the way uh, the person, the meddler intended. On the first page, Lori looked kind of bored as she was reclining at her Atlantean home and seemed a little bit creepy that she was telepathically listening into Clark's conversation at the Daily Planet office. I wonder if uh, he ever uh, really realized uh, that uh, she was doing that. On page three, it's probably not for the best to inform Lois that Lori was responsible for the sea creature latching on to her bathosphere, causing her to faint. And um, on page five, I really wouldn't appreciate Lori telepathically compelling me to kiss someone either. I mean, it's not like uh, I need any... uh, compulsion, need anyone to compel me to want to kiss anyone, well, only my wife, of course. I, I do understand that Lois would not appreciate Superman kissing her on the forehead like his sister, and on the last panel of the page with Lois crying on her pillow, you know, sums up uh, the Silver Age Lois Lane who had begun as the hard-hitting reporter, always out for the scoop, to her Silver Age uh, counterpart who spent most of the time trying to learn Clark's secret identity, although it wasn't exclusive to the Silver Age, but I'm sure happened in the uh, Golden Age as well, and kind of mooning over Superman. And in the uh, recent... um, uh, Secret Origins, The Origin of DC Comics, uh, former Superman writer Louise Simonson commented about how when Lois Lane changed from the Golden Age hard-hitting reporter to kind of the uh, the Silver Age version of mooning over Superman and hoping that the Man of Steel would someday marry her, that she didn't like the Silver Age Lois that much. On page 6 and 7, uh, it showed Lois's uh, habit of leaping before her look, before she looked when she was contemplating marrying this castaway that she didn't really know at all. I'm sure uh, it was pretty clear that the her motivation was trying to get Superman's attention. Well, it certainly did, but not in the way that she'd hoped for when, uh, as when Clark changed into Superman and brought the Prime Minister of the country that the castaway happened to rule. And on page 8, I had a funny picture in my head of Lori putting Lois Lane masks on fish. And I'm kind of glad they didn't show that. It would probably be be a little humorous in ways that the uh, creators of the story uh, probably would not appreciate. And then Lori called up uh, tag team Moby Dicks to uh, uh, kind of hassle the ship. And on the final panel, when Clark wondered who will play matchmaker next, Crypto, well, consider that a story teaser. Uh, I do remember reading a uh, Lois Lane story uh involving Crypto, where he did 
play matchmaker. But I don't think we're quite there yet. It'll be a few years. But mark my word, we will see a story where Crypto played matchmaker to his master. Well, it's now my favorite type of story, as I said. It wasn't bad, and uh, I have to give this story three Superman capes out of five. I guess mainly because I just don't like meddling people in real life. Well, after another promo for a couple of uh, podcasts, we'll begin our look at Action Comics number 266. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com. Hey everybody, my name is Michael Bailey, and this is the trailer with a truly epic ending to my new show about Batman, appropriately titled Bailey's Batman Podcast. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a weekly program that looks at a month in the life of the Dark Knight Detective, starting with the books bearing a March 1983 cover date, which is where my solid run of the characters' comics begins, and moving forward until, well, at least until the books that came out in 2005, because that's where the solid run ends. Each week, I will give you a full synopsis and review of every major ongoing Batman title, with brief stops along the way to look at the important specials, miniseries, one-shots, and Elseworld stories just to keep things interesting. I'll also be telling you what other books Batman appeared in that month, as well as what was going on elsewhere in the DCU. It is going to be all Batman all the time as I look at over 20 years of the character's history. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the epic ending to this trailer. You ready? The first appearance of Jason Todd. Death in the Family. Nightfall Epic No Man's Land Do you have chills yet? All of that and more will be covered on Bailey's Batman Podcast every Tuesday at Bailey's Batman Podcast.com Action Comics number two hundred sixty six the July 1960 issue was published on May 31st of that year. It contained 32 pages for the cover price of a dime. The editor was Mort Weisinger, and the cover was penciled by Kurt Swan and inked by Stan Kay, and featured Supergirl in her fifth cover appearance on Action Comics, and her story was the uh, second story of this issue. The first starred Superman in The Captive of the Amazons. And this 13-page story was written by Jerry Siegel, penciled by Wayne Boring, and inked by Stan Kay, and was reprinted in Showcase Presents Superman Volume 2. And this was the 15th 
uh, or 16th uh, Jerry Siegel's Silver Age Superman story in the pages of Action or Superman in the 33rd overall. And we'll review the uh, stories he did for the um, Superman family of titles after the second story, which he happened to write. So he was a very busy man this month. It began when Perry White gave Clark and Lois mock spacesuits to cover the Ajax Studios' newest star, Jenna, the Space Girl, as she was called. She had attracted Perry's interest, not because uh, he was enamored of her, but uh, nothing was known about her past. It was a complete mystery. And so he wanted to know everything there was to know about uh, her life before becoming a movie star. Clark and Lois boarded the experimental space plane, which also had uh, the movie star Jenna uh, on board, who was uh, being very uncooperative with the producer-director, who uh, was trying to get Jenna to pick a leading man. However, she was turning down every uh, candidate that uh, he um, had proposed to her. As the space plane flew high into the air, the nose began to dive, and Clark ejected in an emergency capsule, then changed into Superman, and flew into the exhaust nozzle, and used his super breath as propulsion until it could land. Then, uh, after the crew and passengers were able to uh, debark uh, safely, Superman flew back to the escape capsule because uh, rescue crews were making their way there to rescue Clark. Then he changed into his Clark Kent identity and to cover the fact that he had burst out of the uh, escape capsule uh, caused it to fall uh, off the edge of a cliff. But uh, when the uh, rescuers found Clark, he was alive and unhurt. But uh, did not raise any suspicions about his secret identity with anyone. Later, Clark was called into the Ajax Studios uh, executive's office, where he signed a $2,000 a week contract. It seemed that Jenna only wanted him as her leading man. And during the first day of shooting of the movie Journey to an Asteroid, Clark's X-ray vision noticed that the prop rocket had real rocket uh, motors inside. After Clark boarded the rocket, he began to feel very weak, and then suddenly the rocket launched, which shocked the entire crew because it was supposed to only be a prop rocket. Jenna revealed to Clark that, first of all, she knew he was really Superman from studying uh, planet Earth through the, uh, her planet's telescope, which she revealed that she was from the distant planet Adoria. She would restore the Man of Steel from kryptonite poisoning on two conditions. First of all, that she would not harm anyone on Adoria, and second, that she would not leave unless she desired it. Once they landed at Adoria, Superman discovered that women were the dominant sex on Adoria and men were the submissive ones. He was also shocked to discover that Jenna desired for him to be her sixth husband. 
The previous five husbands died fighting the mutinous rebel robots. To force Superman into accepting her proposal, she informed him that she had a destructo ray uh, hidden and aimed at Earth, and she would uh, destroy the planet unless she unless he accepted. Superman uh, did and uh, kissed. She was he was kissed by Gina, who was furious because. Uh, he had such a passionless kiss. And in order to force the Man of Steel to fall in love with her, Jenna had Rog, the royal wizard, concoct a mystic love serum, which she spiked in Superman's drink, and after he did, he fell head over heels in love with Jenna. But it did have a few unexpected consequences. Immediately, he burrowed underground and found a giant diamond which he gave to her. Unfortunately, he wrecked the underground subway tube in the process. And when he flew Jenna to her parents' castle to meet, uh, to meet her parents, he entered by crashing through the wall. And after Jenna got uh, her royal father's permission to marry them, he sang a love song so loud that it shattered every urn in the palace, and it even shattered the jewels on um, her father's crown, until Jenna's father asked him to leave. After the wedding ceremony, Superman ate like a pig and drank all the vats of water and until he belched his super breath, bowling over all of the guests. However, when uh, the rebel robots attacked, he um, fought the, valiantly against the rebel robots and threw them in the reservoir. Unfortunately, chemicals from the robots contaminated uh, their only water supply. Well, that was the final straw for, straw for Jenna. Her father granted her wish to have her marriage annulled, and after he left Adoria, uh, at her uh, prodding, Superman found a nice world and towed it to Adoria, where it would melt and become a new water supply for the planet. In appreciation, Jenna gave Superman the location of the destructor ray machine, which he quickly destroyed. As it, and as it turned out, S Superman was not affected at all by the potion. He had overheard thanks to his superhearing, the conversation between Jenna and Rog, and only pretended to have uh, gone crazy uh, and acting like a pig, a stupid, greedy fool, which seemed to come natural for Superman. After returning to Earth in his Clark Kent identity, he wrote the exclusive story about Jenna, the space princess. And the story ended with Jenna continuing her study of Superman on Earth, and she never caught on the real reason that he had acted such a bore on Adoria while he was such a gentleman on Earth. Um, and here's another story where Superman uh, kind of tricked someone by uh, playing a, a different part. You know, in the issue we covered, in the story we covered in this month's issue of Superman, you know, he played the devil, and this one he did played a uh, stupid, greedy fool. 
And as, as I mentioned, he it came natural to him. First of all, I wanted to note that uh, when Clark signed that $2,000 a week contract with the movie studio, today that would translate uh, in today's dollars compared to 1960, $14,910.14, $14, which uh, for those who have low-paying jobs, that's almost half, you know, half a year's salary. You know, not bad money. You know, I'm curious as to how many weeks uh, Clark uh, would uh, earn that salary. And this was another Jerry Siegel Silver Age, excuse me, Silver Age Superman story where the Man of Steel was able to trick his nemesis. Um, he was uh, very crafty in getting out of his marriage. Um, no wonder it's, he's so hard for Lois to bag. I like this story that it took an unexpected twist. First, um, you know, we have no idea what to expect when Perry sends Lois and Clark to cover Gina at her, uh, or Gina at her uh, movie uh, role. And then she is revealed as a princess from an alien planet who has kidnapped Clark or really Superman, uh, and entrap him to be her husband. This was an interesting story, especially you know coming from 1960, showing the gender roles reversed. And when it was re- revealed that Jenna desired Superman to be her sixth husband, it reminded me of the classic Herman's Hermits song from the er- early 1960s, I'm Henry VIII, I Am, which was about a woman would only marry men named Henry, and her new husband was number eight. On page six, when Jenna kissed Superman and became enraged because he had such a passionless kiss, I noticed, you know, this was kind of a theme in this much stories. Uh, Superman was uh, not having much less kissing women uh, this month. At the wedding reception, it was comical to watch Superman playing the fool, uh, picking out on the buffet and uh, over-drinking. I hope uh, the man of still brought breath mints when he, his super belch blew the crowd across the room. On page f- 12, Superman knows how to find ice planets to replenish another world's water supply. I know from reading the book uh, Men of Tomorrow written by uh, Gerard Jones about... Uh, Jerry Siegel kind of liking to write stories about humorous uh, uh, characters like Goober the Mighty, which was a takeoff of Tarzan for his high school newspaper, and his original proposal for Superboy as being a little mischievous uh, young kid uh, who used his superpowers to play tricks on people. So this story was Superman at his mischievous best, and it was certainly out of the ordinary from the way Superman acted during the Silver Age. And I give it a solid three Superman capes out of five. And after a couple of more promos for some comic book podcasts, we'll take a look at the Supergirl story from Action Comics number 266. On May 30th, 2011... 
DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson... J. David Weider... And... Michael Kaiser... Take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right, or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. The Supergirl story for this issue was titled The Might The World's Mightiest Cat. It was thirteen pages long, written by Jerry Siegel, drawn by Jim Mooney, and reprinted in the Supergirl Archives Volume One and Showcase Presents Supergirl Volume One. Now I did pause the recording to go back and recount the number of Jerry Siegel uh, Silver Age stories and I did confirm that this is the 16th Silver Age story Jerry Siegel wrote for the title Superman and Action Comics and his 33rd overall. Uh, between this this story and this issue and the previous issue of Superman, he also wrote a story for Superboy number 82, The War Against Superboy. Uh, it's also the July 1960 issue, drawn by John Sakila. And for Super, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 46, also cover dated July 1960, he wrote the story Jimmy Olsen, Orphan, penciled by Kurt Swan and inked by John Forte. It began with uh, Superman and Crypto entertaining the orphans at the Midvale Orphanage, and after his performance, he gave Linda Lee, who was secretly uh, Supergirl, some souvenir mini Superman capes to hand out for the orphans. So 
one of the orphans, named, a boy named Paul Dexter, got one, and he placed his mini cape on Streaky the Super Cat, or Streaky the Cat, disappointed that the cape uh, wasn't able to make the cat fly. Then we got a flashback into the origin of Streaky uh, getting superpowers after being exposed to X-Kryptonite, which was created by Linda Lee, who had experimented on a small piece of Kryptonite in the uh, orphanage's school lab. Streaky wandered around, and in the woods he found a ball of twine, which somehow had gotten entangled around the small piece of Kryptonite. Uh, ex-Kryptonite and all of a sudden his superpowers returned well Streaky uh, wasn't going he knew a good thing when he saw it so he wasn't going to let that uh, ball of twine get away from it and so he re- flew to the back to the Midvale Orphanage and dropped it off in the basement for safekeeping Paul got a surprise when Streaky flew through his bedroom window but his brief exposure to X-Kryptonite wore off, and his powers vanished uh, before Paul could get back with his friends uh, and confirm that, and so they could see that Streaky had superpowers. Well, Streaky the Cat returned to the basement where he played with the uh, twine, which it contained the piece of X-Kryptonite, and so he had a longer exposure to it, and so his powers returned. Once again, Streaky returned to Paul's room, and uh, Paul asked him to lift the floor lamp, which uh, Streaky did with his mouth, but the lamppost broke in his mouth, and so he bit into the exposed wires, but was unharmed by the electricity. While Paul again went to get his friends, uh, Linda Lee uh, happened to see with her x-ray vision that Streaky was in Paul's room and what had happened to the lamp. And so she secretly changed to Supergirl and flew into Paul's room at super speed, repairing the lamp. And when Paul returned with his friends, once again, he is made to look the fool. Uh, It looked like he was uh, telling tall tales. Paul blamed Streaky, having not seen Supergirl, then he saw Streaky fly out, uh, flying outside and lifting a pine tree, uh, uprooting it out of the ground. Streaky threw the tree, but it was caught by Supergirl and replanted uh, where Streaky had found it. And once again, uh, when Paul took his friends to see where the, the uprooted tree had been, he was made to look like he was telling another tall tale. Supergirl and Streaky were flying through the air when they saw a falling missile, and Streaky decided to play tag, but when he did, he destroyed the rocket, which caused Supergirl to get angry with her pet cat. Streaky then found Paul on the seesaw and wanted to play with him, since uh, uh, Supergirl was not in a good mood. But Supergirl stayed hidden, and to lure Streaky away, she rolled a mechanical mouse past Streaky, and when Streaky chased after it, she snatched the uh, mechanical mouse at super speed and flew into space, leaving Paul once again without proof of his claims that Streaky had superpowers. 
and his friends had had enough and decided to tell the superintendent. While they were up up high above the earth, Supergirl's X-ray vision saw some wild animals about to stampede an African village after escaping from a safari. While Supergirl tackled an elephant and gorilla, Streaky took care of all of the wild cats, and after the safari was able to recover the wild animals, they didn't believe the villagers' claims of a uh, super-powered girl and cat uh, corralling the wild animals. While Supergirl and Streaky flew through Midvale, Streaky once again lost his powers, but Supergirl caught him before he fell into a smokestack. After returning to the orphanage, Linda changed into, I mean, Supergirl changed into her Linda Lee uh, disguise and discovered that Paul was in trouble with the superintendent for lying. When Streaky ran away, uh, at the sound of a barking TV cartoon dog, it gave Linda Lee an idea. Using superventriloquism to communicate with Crypto, when Paul saw Streaky pushing a tree, uh, the superintendent happened to see Crypto using his super breast to tilt the tree, and so Paul was convinced that Crypto had used his super breast to make it seem that Streaky had superpowers. And the superintendent was man enough to apologize to Paul for assuming that he had been lying. And at the end of the story, it left Linda Lee wondering what trouble Streaky was going to get into the next time he had superpowers. Now, when I first saw the pattern in the story of Paul unable to prove that Streaky had superpowers, it reminded me of the Looney Tune One Froggy Evening, which was the first and as far as I know only appearance of Michigan J. Frog who was the mascot of the old WB network and if you catch it on YouTube or a Looney Tune collection look at it, it is a very funny, very good cartoon about a man who found a singing frog, unfortunately by the time he can get someone else to come see the singing frog, the frog has finished his song and dance a second before the man shows up with a potential witness. And this was the second streaky story. It was a nice touch of Superman giving the mini capes to the orphans. And it was also, uh, he and Crypto had some very cool aerial maneuvers that they did to entertain the orphans. And I guess, you know, being an orphan from Krypton... I guess Superman has a special place in his heart for orphans, and I always like to see that. This was the first time we see uh, the Man of Steel giving the mini capes as a souvenir. It was uh, cute seeing Paul hoping that the super cape would give Streaky the ability to fly. And this uh, story, uh, excuse me, Streaky... Uh, really challenged Linda's ability to keep her secret identity. And uh, first with this uh, repairing the lamp at super speed with the tree and the seesaw. Now when Supergirl and Streaky saved the village from the rampaging wild animals, technically she did break Superman's promise to keep her identity secret. But since only the primitive villagers happened to see them and the safari didn't believe them, Maybe Superman let it slide. 
Um, I did like how Linda didn't leave Paul in the lurch, taking the blame for uh, being accused of lying, since it was not his fault. And Linda showing that she was as adept at superventriloquism almost as much as Superman, but I don't know if she's able to uh, throw her, her voice as far as Superman could from the belly of a whale. This was a cute, humorous story. Uh, it was a nice touch. It was almost as much about Paul as it was with Supergirl. And it was good to see that you know his reputation was clear, even if the true actual truth was hidden from him. And I give this story three Superman capes out of five. And that finishes our look at the two Superman titles for this month. And after a couple of more promos for some Superman podcasts, uh, we'll take a look at elsewhere in DC Comics for the uh, cover dated July or July-August 1960. In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents Superman in the Bronze Age Superman in the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com Elsewhere in DC Comics, there were 26 titles which carried the July or July-August 1960 cover date, so there weren't quite as many uh, titles this month as there usually are from DC during this era. The first two titles were published in the month of April, both uh, among DC's romance titles, beginning with around April 5th, and most dates are approximate because records for this era are not complete. Um, beginning with April, around April 5th, Secret Hearts number 64, which featured the issue's fourth and final story on the cover, Something Borrowed, Something Blue. And around April 19th, Girls' Romances number 69, which featured the issue's fourth and final story on the cover, Love Only Once. And the remaining uh, titles were published during the month of May, beginning around May 3rd, beginning with Our Army at War number 96, edited by Robert Conniger, which featured the issue's first of three stories on the title, and... Uh, that happened to be the 15th Sergeant Rock story, titled Last Stand for Easy. Also, 
around that date, the July-August issue of Tomahawk number 69, uh, edited by Jack Schiff, which featured the issue's third of three, at third and final story of the issue on the cover, titled The Girl Who Played Tomahawk. And published around May 5th, along with Superman number 138, House of Mystery number 100. This title hit the century mark, edited by Jack Schiff, and also featured the issue's third and final story on the cover, The Beast Within the Earth. Edited around May 10th, or released around May 10th, I should say, Blackhawk number 150, which is another milestone issue, also edited by Jack Schiff. And it featured the issue's third and final story on the cover, The Return of King Condor. Also around that date, My Greatest Adventures, number 45, also edited by Jack Schiff. And it featured the issue's third and final story on the cover, I Unleashed the Light Ray Creature. And finally, for this date, the July-August issue of TV Screen Cartoons, number 135. It featured three stories, starring Fox and a Crow, as well as one story each, featuring Flippity and Flop and Tito and his burrito. And stay tuned, folks, because this uh, title will only be on the air for three more issues, so to speak. Published around May 12th, House of Secrets number 34, also edited by Jack Schiff, which featured the issue's first of three stories on the cover, which starred Mark Merlin in his 12th comic book story, titled The Puzzle of the Plundering Creatures. Also released around this date, the July-August issue of The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, number two, uh, which was based on the popular comedy of that era, which also featured... The actor Bob Denver, who would go on to star in the comedy TV comedy series Gilligan's Island. Also that week, Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 18, edited by Mort Weisinger, which featured the third, of three, third and final Lois Lane story on the cover, Lois Lane Wed's Astounding Man. And finally that week, Wonder Woman number 115, edited by Robert Koniger, which featured the issue's first of two stories in a cover, Graveyard of Monster Ships. Published around May 17th, the July-August issue of The Adventures of Jerry Lewis number 59, Tales of the Unexpected number 51, which featured the issue's third and final story on a cover, which was the 14th Space Ranger story, titled Space Rangers Super Enemy. Published around May 19th, the July-August issue of Our Fighting Forces, number 56, edited by Robert Koniger, which featured the issue's first of three stories on the cover, which was the 14th Gunner and Sarge story, titled Brigade of Bullets. Or no, sorry, Bridge of Bullets. Sorry, couldn't read my own handwriting. Also published around this time, Superboy number 82, edited by Mort Weisinger, which featured a great three-part novel, The War Against Superboy. And finally, uh, published around this date, Superman's Pal Jimmy Olsen number 46, which featured the first of three stories in a title of the issue on the cover, Jimmy Olsen Orphan, which we mentioned previously 
as being written by uh, Jerry Siegel. And I failed to mention that Tales of the Unexpected, Tales of the Unexpected, issue number 51, was edited by Jack Schiff. Published around May 24th, the July-August issue of a number one issue, Green Lantern number one, edited by Julia Schwartz, which featured the issue's second of two stories on the cover, Menace of the Giant Puppet. And this starred Green Lantern in his first Silver Age solo title after premiering in a few issues of Showcase. And unlike The Flash, uh, which continued the numbering from the original Golden Age title, Green Lantern, which uh, in the Golden Age, uh, the Alan Scott Green Lantern uh, first appeared in All-American Comics, then got his own title. But for whatever reason, the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, after his appearances in Showcase, got his uh, own title, which began with issue number one. Also that week, the July-August issue of Western Comics number 82, also edited by Julia Schwartz, which features the issue's first of three stories on the cover, starring Matt Savage, Trail Boss, and his sixth story, titled Showdown at Rawhide Gulch. And this issue also featured stories which starred Wyoming Kid and Powwow Smith. And published on May 26th, the July-August issue of All-American Men of War number 80, edited by Robert Koniger, which did not feature a particular st- story title on the cover. The July-August issue of Showcase number 27, also edited by Robert Koniger and featured featuring the first appearance and origin of the Sea Devils in The Golden Monster. Now, I'm not that familiar with the Sea Devils, but they were a group of adventurers who did not have superpowers, but as the title would suggest, uh, they were adventurers uh, who uh, explored the depths of the sea in their uh, comic book stories. And finally for this date... Strange Adventures number 8118, edited by Julius Schwartz, which featured the issue's first of three stories on a title, The Turtle Men of Space. And finally, for the around the date of May 31st, published along with Action Comics number 266, Adventure Comics number 274, which uh, featured the story The Monster That Stalked Smallville, and the cover featured a very odd scene of Ma and Pa Kent watching Superboy on a seesaw with the monster in question. This issue also featured Aquaman and Congo Bill starring in their individual stories. And finally for this month, Detective Comics number 281, edited by Jack Schiff, featuring the story Batman Robot, which does not quite have the same ring as the Isaac Asimov story I, Robot. But anyway, this story featured Roy Raymond and the Martian Manhunter in their solo stories in the back of this issue. Well, next episode, we'll we'll take a break from a regularly scheduled Silver Age comic book story, and we will uh, take a break from flying into the past through the time barrier to the Silver Age, and stay in the present for Megacon 2012 Preview.
And uh, following that episode, I will break this uh, episode up into parts uh, from the convention floor with uh, interviews with comic book creators as well as as many panels as I can get good audio for um, and, you know, get the permission to record them for this podcast. Then in two weeks, we will uh, uh, pick up where we left off and take a look at the Superman Family comic book cover dated June 1957. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number 21. And in three weeks, we will return to the Superman comic books cover dated August 1960. Superman number 139 in Action Comics number 267. And before I go, I want to uh, ask you if if anyone is going to be at Megacon to uh, drop me a note either by email or on the uh, Facebook page or group and uh, let me know and uh, hopefully we'll uh, meet in person. Uh, I'm really looking forward to Megacon. This will be the third year in a row I've attended and the fifth time overall, but I'll uh, save uh, more details until next week when I will take a look at some of the um, panels that uh, interest me and the ones that um, I think I'll be able to attend. I will also be taking a week vacation, so until we meet again, either through next week's episode or at Megacon, have a good week. This concludes another episode of the Superman Fan Podcast. The home website is the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes and most other podcast aggregators, as well as supermanfanpodcast.wordpress.com and the Internet Archive at archive.org. Your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a proud member of the following. The League of Comic Book Podcasters at comicbooknoise.com slash league. The Comics Podcast Network at comicspodcasts.com. The Superman Web Ring of Websites and the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com where you can find podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel from the Golden Age to today. The theme music for this podcast is titled Plans in Motion, composed by Kevin McLeod, part of the royalty-free music library at incompetech.com. You can join the Superman Fan Podcast group and page on Facebook and follow the podcast on Twitter at Superman Podcast. Superman and all related characters and images are trademark and copyright of DC Comics. Any artwork displayed with the show notes is for entertainment purposes only. I make no claim of ownership to the images shown, nor do I earn any money or profit from this podcast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Superman Fan Podcast. 
Join me next week as together we'll crash through the time barrier to fly into the past and explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. As always, thanks to Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, creators of Superman. <laughs>